Well, again, good morning. Welcome to One Life Community Church. As I mentioned a moment ago, my name is Greg. I'm one of the co-lead pastors here. And uh, whether you are visiting in person or joining us online, we are delighted uh, that you are able to be here and have chosen to make space and take time to be with us as we engage together with God. Um, if you are online, a great place to join us is www.onelifeseattle.org live. Lots of cool goodies there for you to have a really great online experience. Um, but again, uh, we are uh, just happy that, that you're here with us, however you're connecting. I do want to say before we get into too much stuff, it is warm in here. Um, I'm sure you all know that. Um, but when I was walking down, those vents are actually putting out cold air. So if at any time you feel just a little overwhelmed by the heat, just go stand over by one of those. It's really nice over there. So uh, I, I, I walk very slowly down that side to get down here. But anything you need to do uh, to, be, to be comfortable, feel free um, to do that. Um, it, I want to start before I, before I pray. Um, I've mentioned this book a couple of times. It's called The Supper of the Lamb, a culinary reflection by um, his name is uh, Robert Farrar Capone. Um, and uh, I want to read just a, a couple quotes from this uh, book. Um, it is a cookbook. It's a unique cookbook. He will uh, talk about that there's a handful of recipes, but there's really one recipe that goes through the whole uh, book. Um, and in uh, chapter 2, he talks about uh, chopping an onion. And I've mentioned this before, um, but he, he talks about taking an hour to chop one onion. Um, and, and allowing yourself to be, and it, when you read it, you'll feel like, okay, this is a little much, um, but um, it's actually quite beautiful, and so uh, I'm, I'm going to read just a little bit of it, and he's talking about uh, just as you've taken the, um, kind of what he calls the paper, the skin off of the onion, and he says, accordingly, when you have removed all the paper, turn the fragments upside down on the board, they are elegant company. For with their understated display of wealth, they bring you to one of the oldest and most secret things of the world, the sight of what no one but you has ever seen, this quiet gold and subtly flattened sheen of greenish-yellow-white onion that now stands exposed our new land. Like the incredible fit of twin almonds in a shell, they present themselves to you as the animals to Adam, as nameless till seen by a person, to be met, known, and christened into the city of being. They come as deputies of all the hiddenness of the world, of all the silent competencies endlessly at work, deep down things. And they come to you, to you as their priest and voice for ablation by your heart's astonishment at their great glory. And he also says this, uh, as he's sort of getting to the end of this, he says, perhaps now you have seen at least dimly that the uniqueness of creation are the results of continuous creative support, of effective regard by no mean lover. He likes onions, therefore they are. The fit, the colors, the smell, the tensions, the taste, the textures, the lines, the shapes are a response not to some forgotten decree that there may as well be onions as turnips, but to his present delight, his intimate and immediate joy in all you have seen and in the thousand other wonders you do not even suspect. With Peter, the onion says, Lord, it is good for us to be here. Yes, says God, very good. Let's pray. Lord, I give you thanks for your creation. 
Lord, and that it's not just something that you sent spinning and, and, and then just are not involved in, but it is your continuous loving support and that all things you've created are very good. Lord, I pray from that space we would learn to acknowledge one another, the people around us, your creation in that same way. Help us to be in awe and, and moved in ways by new conversations um, with, with new experiences with people um, that we might have a new sense of what it means to be in relationship. I ask this in your name, Jesus. Amen. We are in our third week of this sermon series entitled Discipleship, Finding Our Way in Jesus, and we've actually discovered quite a bit. Uh, We talked about how this word disciple occurs a lot in the New Testament as a way to describe someone who's following Jesus. And what this has meant is that they're not only trying to learn the things that Jesus did sort of in in, in an academic way, that I can recite some things that Jesus said or some teachings, but to embody who Jesus was. Right, and this relationship of teacher or rabbi to student or follower, that, that again, it wasn't just to learn sort of in an academic way, but, but could, the, could the rabbi pass on to the person the way they lived? And could the student then embody that and live that out? And we've had a handful of quotes that we've used, and, and I've, we've wanted to kind of keep these in each week just to keep presenting them. And the first one is from... Uh, a gentleman named Esau Macaulay, and he says, as all of Paul's letters make clear, Christian discipleship is about showing how the implications of the gospel spread out in a thousand directions. Um, and, and we've talked about that as sort of an image of, of light emitting out just in, in every possible direction. And the, each one of those rays of light is like an individual life that, 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 that the gospel is, is moving out in each of our lives. And then we looked at uh, Grace Sejun Kim and Graham Hill. It says, we must not root our Christian identity in nationalism, ethnicity, partisan politics, sociopolitical economic status, gender, and other such things. Instead, we must root Christian identity in discipleship to Jesus Christ. This identity is formed through a vision of what it means to be a distinct people with an alternative ethic, politic, and life together. Right? And so this is what is supposed to be the root of our Christian identity, this discipleship. Um, and then uh, from Caesar Kalinowski with one of the best mustaches ever, uh, discipleship is the process of moving from unbelief to belief in the gospel of Jesus in absolutely every area of life. So again, there's that idea of in a thousand different directions, the, the, the whole of who we are. And we've also used this verse from Acts 17, 28. For in Jesus, for, or for in him, uh, we live, move, and have our being. And we shifted at one point to, to sort of saying the identity that we have as disciples has three components. And that was uh, identity as family, identity as servant, and identity as missionary. And we went through uh, family and servant. Now today we're going to sort of unpack and and explore this idea of missionary. Now, I've discovered some things about myself over the 53-plus years uh, of my life, and one of those is that I like to celebrate. 
I don't always like it to be boisterous, but sometimes I do. But I like to celebrate. I like to celebrate sacredness. And I don't do it perfectly, and I'm growing in this, and I certainly don't celebrate everything the way it should be or when it should be. But I love to celebrate. And this is why I've discovered I like these things that I'm going to call golden buzzer moments. Right? And these are on uh, some of the talent-oriented reality shows. America's Got Talent, Britain's Got Talent, and, and I'll even watch Norway's Got Talent. It doesn't matter for me sometimes if I can't understand anything that's being said. The golden buzzer moment where one of the judges, you know, because the competition, the way it works is people compete each week, right? But if someone gets the golden buzzer, one of the judges or kind of the MC of the show, uh, if, if they come down and hit the golden buzzer, that person goes all the way to the end. They go all the way to the live performance. They get a skip all the weekly things. And so it's this way that they, they honor someone's talent and their performance. Um, and <clears throat> it's this great moment because they hit the buzzer and there's always some big lead up. And of course, they edit the camera really nicely. And, but then these, you know, golden flecks of confetti come, you know, flying down. And the person has always moved. The judges all get up and it's this huge celebration. The judges love it. They love it when someone hits the golden buzzer, and they all celebrate. The one who hit the buzzer gets to go up on stage, and there's all this hugging, and it's this really, uh, I think, an amazing moment. Because I so love to see people be celebrated. But I'm discovering that this can look a lot of different ways. Right? How, how this happens, how these golden buzzer moments happen. When I was a campus pastor, I encountered all kinds of different people. Every year, thousands, excuse me, thousands of new students would show up at the University of Washington looking for all kinds of things. Um, and oftentimes feeling lost in, in a big sea of people. Um, one of the students I got to know um, <clears throat> came to our Friday night meeting and then signed up for a core group, much like uh, hopefully all of you will uh, here, but a small group where we could get to know each other better. And part of that, um, if, you, if you're in one of these small groups, is whoever was facilitating that meeting would try to meet with you every couple weeks just to form relationship, uh, build trust, friendship, and, and kind of grow together uh, in, in faith and, and in Christ. And... This student was uh, the kind of student who, um, when you asked them, hey, what are you going to do over the summer? I remember one year they said, well, there are like these seven or so math problems that no one's ever figured out that people have been trying to solve for years. I'm going to take a crack at a couple of those. Oh, you and I are not going to have a lot in common. Um, <laughs> And uh, they won this very prestigious award at, at UW. And at the, the ceremony where they were receiving this reward, several professors said things like, this is a once-in-a-generation or a once-in-a-lifetime kind of genius, right? This was a really smart, intelligent person. The first time that we met, um, in, a, in a sort of just the two of us, we went to Aladdin's Year Roastery on the Ave, which I highly recommend if you've never been there. Um, and uh, I started talking, which I often do, and I was asking lots of questions because that's what I've been trained to do, uh, and this person answered for about a half hour, answered all my questions with yes, no, maybe, I don't know, 
Um, and, and after about a half hour, I was kind of out of questions. I was kind of done. Um, except for the question of why are you not answering my questions with more than this? Uh, but I didn't ask that question. And so I just stopped. Stopped asking questions, and I stopped talking altogether. And we sat for almost another half hour in silence. Neither one of us said anything. Every now and then we kind of look up, go back to eating, look around. Uh, we weren't on our phones or anything. We were just sitting. We said goodbye. And I was like, I will probably never see this person again because that was super awkward, and that's often how that's going to go. Um, they showed up at CORE that week, said they wanted to meet again. I was shocked. Um, and, uh, and when we got together, the first thing they said was, so last time we met, we sat for almost a half hour, and you didn't say anything to me. Why? I was like, oh, you, now you're going right for it. Um, and so I said, uh, honestly, it's just what I felt was the thing to do in that moment. Uh, and they said it was one of the best things that anyone had ever done. It was one of the first times they felt that someone was good with them being who they were. That so often the conversations were like how ours started out. Just these question after question after question. And for him, those were boring, tedious. But the fact that I was okay with their awkwardness, the silence, that meant the world to them. That they had never had anyone just sit and hang out with them like friends who knew each other well could do. I later had the privilege of officiating their wedding and getting to celebrate their growing family when they welcomed the daughter into their lives. Um, all because of that moment that I sat and just did nothing. But apparently I was doing something. You might ask, what does this have to do with mission? What does this have to do with this discipleship identity as a missionary? And especially because many of us get really nervous when we use that word missionary. Some of us get angry. Some of us feel lots of emotion around that word. This is a word that's gone through lots of changes. Historically, it's meant different things. There was a time when kings would, would send Christian missionaries to go as part of the expansion and the strengthening of their kingdom. It was part of conquering or claiming or controlling. There was uh, one uh, historian, uh, Sturla Pardosin. I, I know I didn't get that accent right, but uh, they were talking about this king, Hakan, Hakanarsen, um, and they were, uh, this is what they said. This is Icelandic historian talking about the king. He dwelt long in the Trondheim district for the strength of the country lay there. And when he thought that by the support of some powerful people uh, there, he could set up Christianity, he sent a message to England for a bishop and other teachers. And when they arrived in Norway, Hakon made it known that he would proclaim Christianity over all the land. And this quote goes on, uh, the people of Moor and Runesdal referred the matter to the people of Trondheim, and King Hakon then had several churches consecrated, put priests into them, and when he came to Trondheim, he summoned the bonds to what they call a thing, that's a gathering, and invited them to accept Christianity. 
they gave an answer to the effect that they would defer the matter until a later thing at which there would be men from every district of the Trondheim country and then they would give their determination upon this difficult matter. What we have here is a king who's saying, um, I'm going to come in and set up a church and then you'll become Christians and in doing so you'll become mine. This land will be mine. And, and, and sending missionaries and, and, sending, uh, and establishing churches was a part of that process. Um, and certainly, Western Christian uh, m- missionaries, in a lot of ways, would often bring the gospel to people, but that also meant that they would need to uh, bring their own civilization, as they phrased it, into that process. And so it often meant that missionaries were uh, stripping people of their cultural heritage while in the process of teaching them the gospel. Um, and it's actually interesting because uh, today there's a lot of research being done to investigate. So if, if we take, especially with indigenous peoples, if we take those cultures and the beliefs and, and the spiritualism that they had, and if Christianity, if the missionaries came and instead looked at it and said, well, what can we discover together? There's a lot that we could have learned, specifically about things like creation and community. One of the most beautiful things I ever heard was in a, a class I took recently um, where uh, uh, a person from the First Nations people, the, the Cree in Canada, was saying that one of the things they do uh, to establish and, and teach people about community is when uh, uh, a child is two or three, they give them this little backpack, and they'll put like a piece of meat or a piece of grain or you know some something in some type of food in the backpack, and they'll. They'll be at one house with one parent, and then the whole community is two houses down the road. And then they'll send the child down the street to that other house. And when that child gets to the next house, everyone cheers and applauds. Golden buzzer moment, shouting, he has brought food for the people. She has brought food for the people. And there's this sense of community building, right? We could learn a lot from that. But... Often, missionaries came in and, and, and took away everything, often. Not all the time, but it did happen. And so then, what do we do with this? How do we navigate this? Well, uh, this guy, Paul, um, in Acts 17, um, he's in Athens, and he, uh, I'll just read the passage here. Um, This is Acts 17, 22 and 23. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. Now what you worship is something unknown. I am going to proclaim to you. And that's the add-on. It's not on that spot there. But what Paul does is... Um, he goes into the Areopagus, which, which is actually very common for people to do. So he's not unwelcome. He's not barging in. He's not sort of staking a claim. He's just being part of the very normal process, right? And it even says before this that he's teaching in the synagogues, which, again, would have been his thing to do. And then he goes on to tell the creation story and says, hey, you know what? That's, you're actually spot on with that. Let me tell you how, how I understand that. Let's see what we can figure out. 
And that leads up to the verse that we use, for in him we live, move, and have our being. And he even quotes one of their poets, because their poets say, we are his offspring. And he's like, yeah, exactly. And that if people, if, if, if missionaries could be in that frame of mind, there would be something different that would have happened. But so, that's some of the kind of difficult stuff about that word missionary, but what do we mean? What's the positives then? How do we want to be this? And what does it mean for us in our everyday life? And I think uh, the, the, the hang-up is on that word missionary, and so I want to shift the word and, 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 and bring another word in, and that's the word apostle, um, which was used to describe the disciples of Jesus after Jesus had left after his resurrection. And this means sent one, representative or messenger. And so, um, so then it's saying, so are we sent ones of Jesus? Are we messengers of Jesus? I would say yes. But then it's like, so can we actually connect that to us? Like, are we apostles? Uh, and if we are sent, where are we sent to? And if we are sent, are we sent with some kind of task or something like that? And the answer to the first question of are we apostles, I would say yes. Now, in, uh, in Corinthians, Paul asks the question, are we all apostles? And he says, are we all apostles? Are we all prophets? And it seems like he's making a distinction that would say, no, we're not all apostles. But I think at the time, Paul was referring to those original apostles, the ones who personally knew Jesus, because that's how it was first meant. But if we look at the Great Commission, which we will in just a second, there's this idea of passing on everything that they've been taught, and that each person takes up that role. And when I look at the whole arc of Scripture, the whole arc of what Jesus taught and how that fits in, I can wholeheartedly say that I believe that each one of us is a sent one. We're all to participate in God's work of reconciling all things and do our part that is to love God and love our neighbors. The second question is then where are we sent? Uh, and if we go uh, to back to the Great Commission, which we've looked at a couple of times, it's in Matthew 28, uh, 16 through 20. Um, when we looked at this a few weeks ago, we used the First Nations uh, indigenous translation of the New Testament, and we're going to do that again today. Um, and so I'm going to read that and then talk about how that answers the question about where are we sent. It says, The remaining 11 of his followers journeyed to Circle of Nations, Galilee. There at the mountain where Creator sets free, Jesus had told them to go. They met with him. When they saw him, they gave him the honor he deserved. But there were some who still doubted. All the authority of the spirit world above and the earth below has been given to me, he told them. So now I am sending you into all nations to teach them how to walk the road with me. You will represent me as you perform the purification ceremony with them, uh, baptism, initiating them into the life of beauty and harmony represented in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. You will teach them all the ways that I have instructed you to walk in, and I will always be with you, your invisible guide walking beside you until the new age has fully come. So in here, I'm sorry about that, we can see that um, Jesus says it's all nations, everywhere. Well, where are you right now? Are you in all nations right now? Yes. Are you in all nations when you go to your home? Yes. Are you in all nations when you go to the store? Yes. Are you in all nations when you go somewhere else? Yes. You are in all nations when you go anywhere and everywhere. And so it's not so much of an issue as we have to go somewhere and then start doing this. It's better phrased as you go. 
wherever you're at then, on the road, we're to be doing this. Okay? Doing what? Well, we're sent to live our lives differently by embodying Jesus. Okay, Greg, that's what we've been talking about. Um, but I want to uh, look at one moment that I think, because some of the questions we've been getting is, how, but all this stuff you're talking about, embodying Jesus, doing that is fine. We talk about that phrase, but I want to know, what does it mean in my life right now? So I want to give you an example of something that I think will help. It's Jesus' first, what people often see is the first moment leading into his ministry. And it's Jesus' baptism. It's Matthew 3, uh, 13 through 17. And it says this. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized by John. But John tried to, to, to deter him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? Jesus replied, let it be so now. It is proper for us to do this, to fulfill all righteousness. And then John consented. As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. At that moment, heaven was opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and lighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my Son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Jesus participates in a ritual that is for repentant sinners. People who have committed a sin are saying, I'm going to change my ways. I'm going to turn from that behavior. I'm going to turn from that, and I'm going to move in a new direction. But followers of Jesus believe that Jesus was without sin. So why should he do this? Very simply, I would say, to stand in solidarity and empathy with all humanity. Jesus was born a human being, not a disguise. He didn't put on humanity kind of like a coat. Jesus was fully human. And so he experienced what every human needed to experience in that baptism. One of the things that I find so interesting about this is that right after this, Jesus is led into the desert by the Holy Spirit to be tempted by Satan, by the enemy. And what Jesus is tempted with two times, there's three temptations. The first two, Satan says, you know, if you are the Son of God, he didn't say if you're a human being, he says if you're the Son of God, if you have power, you should do these things. Jesus says, no, that's not the way it works. And the last one, Satan basically says, look, I'll give you everything. Everything you see here. All the kingdoms of the earth. I can give you that. You just have to bow down to me. But you'll have power and you can do whatever you want. Just bow down to me. You can have all of that. And Jesus says, No. And yet we see Satan saying, come on, Jesus, use that power of yours. Claim your sonship. Claim your connection to the Godhead, to the Trinity. It's a power to be used. It's a power to control, to lord it over people. Even saying, yeah, lord it over me, Jesus, bring it. Take control of this situation. Shut me down. I dare you. And yet, where Jesus just came from was standing in solidarity with humanity. 
And so it's very interesting to me that in a battle of temptation against power, Jesus leans into solidarity with the powerless. And so if we're looking for a way to begin practicing this identity of discipleship, this identity of missionary, I think in our world right now, we can start with solidarity. We can begin practicing this idea by finding those who are suffering, hurting, disenfranchised, put down on the margins, overlooked, whatever word you want to use, and we can stand in solidarity with them. And so as we wrap up, I want to invite the worship team back up. Um, and we typically have uh, questions, and in a second, we, we don't have any, well, we do one question, but we're not going to go about it the usual way. But I want to ask, like, can we intentionally, because that's the other thing about mission, there's an intentionality to it, right? Can we intentionally make each moment with a person kind of that golden buzzer moment? Even if it means sitting and being with them exactly as they are, and as awkwardly as they and we are, with no agenda other than that we both know that we are the beloved of God. Can we see each person and each moment we have with them as sacred? Not that we have to make something happen or force something, but just that we get to be with them in that moment, knowing that we are also held as the beloved, that we can see people this way because we have been seen this way. That's what I think it means to be on mission. I want to give a few moments to, to respond. I'm going to pray in just a moment. But the thing I want you to think about, and I want you, if you have some paper, write it down. I want you to find a way to keep this with you. Take a note on your phone. Um, but I just want you to answer the question, what is one thing that God seems to be bringing to the surface for you this morning? And the image I have is like something that's under the water. You might be able to see it. It's kind of blurry, but it's, it, it's coming up. And even as water's pouring off of it, you can begin to see clearly. Is there something like that that maybe God has been working in you for a while or even just this morning? Um, but we're going to take a few minutes and just allow, allow that to happen. Um, and if you want to write that down, make a note on your phone. If you want to send that to us, we love to hear these things. Um, that would be great. I also want to let you know that the prayer team is going to be available for you. Uh, if you would like to uh, receive prayer for anything uh, during this time. I'm going to pray. The worship team will play for a moment, give you some time and space to reflect and think about that one thing, um, and, then, uh, and then we'll close with a song and a benediction. God, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of overwhelmed uh, Lord, to be honest, that um, we could find such delight and discovery in something as simple as an onion. And yet, Lord, we, in our world today, so easily 
don't think of people as wonderful. God, I, I pray we would begin to take the words of Scripture not as um, just something to read, but that they would get into us. We would embody things like, so now we no longer see anyone the way the world does. We no longer look at other people as something to use or something to, to, to help me get an advantage. Or something to move away from. God, I, I confess that there are times recently that, um, yeah, I just know that there are a lot of people who are really hurting, and it feels like, uh, in a lot of ways, the church just isn't getting it, and Lord, and Lord, there's something so good that you have brought to us, and so, Lord, I pray, I just pray simply, we would be the church. I ask this in your name, Jesus. Amen.